Welcome to the WEPC Discipleship Podcast, because the gospel changes everything. All right, good morning. Well, uh, if y'all followed the instructions and joined us over in the library, then you would have heard the announcement. But for those of you, for those of you scandalous enough to uh, to stay to come here earlier, I kid, I kid. Um, I'm making another change to the calendar, and I didn't print a new one because you guys are right. Like I, I'm going to be making changes again, but I'm making another change to the calendar, which is we're not going to meet on January second. So we're not meeting January 2nd. We're going to take two weeks off and come back January 9th. And the reason is uh, this past week as I was interacting with the children's ministry team, the the youth ministry team, realizing that everybody is taking off the next two weeks, that it was just going to be our class on the 2nd. And so... um, we're just not going to do that. Let's take two weeks off. So we'll come back Janu- uh, January 9th. I have adjusted the calendar uh, in m- on my own way, and I will let you know as it comes in. But uh, if you got your handout, you will see um, at the very back in the homework, I'm just going to jump straight to the homework. In the very back of the handout, it'll tell you the homework that you need to be doing over these two weeks. So... Take some time over these three weeks from here until January 9th to examine what your 12 components of discipleship are. Review the memorization of the Shema, uh, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer. After today, you will have six components of discipleship. So you should be have in your own mind and even on your little on your form in your um, in your binder. You should have six, after today, you should have six components of discipleship. In other words, six steps of what are you doing by the power of the Holy Spirit to love the Lord your God and your neighbor with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What are the six different things you're doing in order to do that? Like, are you praying more? Are you fasting? Uh, I'll say for myself, uh, just a couple weeks ago, I was challenged by something I was listening to uh, that we need to be fasting more. And I ha- I, it's been years since I really had. Um, and uh, what this man said, and I, I had never really thought about it this way, was fasting is another form of prayer. Uh, praying is us going to God and saying, uh, we, need, we need you above all other things. And fasting is the bodily form of prayer. Bodily, your body is saying, I need one thing above all else. You know, your body's craving food. It needs food. We should eat. Uh, But it is a way of like this craving, this desire, this need of God above all else. And so uh, I took one of my steps was I'm just going to plan to fast a a few more times in my life. Uh, So that's one of my things. Uh, When we return January 9th, we will review the remainder of the Old Testament book. So today, we are going to look at the prophets. Woohoo! How many people here love to have your devotionals in Nahum? 
Okay. <laughs> Not many. Uh, you've read it, you know, you know. Amos is like a big guy, you know, you've heard all these things. But when we return January 9th, we will review the remainder of the Old Testament books. So uh, just review them and, and survey them. So let's get back to the front of the handout. So what do you guys think of when you think of the prophets? What do you think of? Faithful. Say again, Margie. Faithful. Faithful. Yeah, faithful. Okay. Hard lives, yes, some of them have some pretty hard lives. That is true, Pam. Amazing. Amazing. I like that. Warnings. Warn yeah, warnings. Yeah, that is true. Speaking God's words to his people. Speaking God's words to his people. Amen. Yeah, John, what were you saying? I was saying messengers. Messengers, yeah, messengers, yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think about when you think of some of these minor prophets? Like, what are some thoughts that come to head? Like Amos, um, Micah, Haggai, Zephaniah. What are some thoughts that come to mind? Seems like they're all talking about God's um, dissatisfaction with the Israel, idols or Yeah, when you read them, they they sound angry. <laughs> they talk a lot about dissatisfaction, a God's dissatisfaction of, uh, of God's people, sometimes even not God's people, uh, the, the farther nations, the foreign nations. Yeah. Any other thoughts? I think it's easy to tend to think they're not as important because they're called the minor prophets. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Kathy, thank you for saying that. Uh, the, re the division between the major and minor prophets is not in importance, but in length. I mean, that's really why they're called major prophets and minor prophets is because the major prophets just are longer. There's just more of them. They're longer books. And so the church, uh, not even the church, the um, Second Temple Judaism referred to them as major prophets because the books were long and minor prophets because they were short. And if you remember from last week or maybe the week before, they all meld together, that the minor prophets, there's 12 of them uh, in, the, uh, in the Jewish canon that they refer to the 12 minor prophets. They include uh, Ezra and Nehemiah in there. Uh, and so, the, you know, they're making this connection to the 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 minor prophets, and then there are the, the, uh, the six major prophets. Uh, we refer to prophets a little bit differently. They refer to the um, first and second kings as a, pro a book of prophets. Uh, we refer to them as history. It doesn't really matter. But um, so... The time of the prophets, I put on here, the, there are four major time periods of the Old Testament. You get the pre-monarchical period. What, what's that period? Before the kings. Before, <laughs> before the kings, yes. It's so like Moses, right? Uh, Moses is like the typical prophet. He was, the scripture refers to him as a prophet. He's a leader of Israel. Uh, this time period sees a very fluid and dynamic understanding of what a prophet is. The prophets led the people of God. They revealed God's truth. They're the primary representatives of God. This is what you know, Moses does, right? He goes up, he speaks to God face to face. 
uh, comes down, reveals the law. Uh, the covenant between God and his people is developing, becoming more clear. Uh, they are the primary leaders who br- help to bring the covenant into shape. And then you get the monarchy. What's the monarchy? Or what's, what's the monarchical prophets? What's that time period? Yeah. So, you're a poet and you didn't even know it. From Saul to the fall. Yes. That's true, Uh, from Saul to the fall. And that's what most of the prophets that we have in our scripture and what we're going to look at today, most of them are monarchical prophets. And this is, there's a big, vast change in prophets. It's during this time we see a huge expansion and growth in the number of prophets. There's an institution of prophets that's founded. They're no longer the leaders of the nation, but they are the primary means of God keeping check on the leaders. Does that make sense? They serve as God's emissaries of his covenant. Um, They helped define what we understand as prophecy and what we understand as prophet's role is during this time. There is the leaders of the, the people of God, and then there are prophets. And the prophets speak and keep check on the leaders. That's the big thing about this uh, time period. Uh, and then we get into the exilic prophets. What is that? Yeah, the exile. This is the time where, and this is some of the prophets like Ezekiel, Daniel. Uh, we'll talk about them next time. Uh, this is the time of the prophets that are speaking during the exile. All the Jerusalem is destroyed. The institution of prophets is gone by this point. Um, there are few and far between. It's no longer um, lucrative and good to be a prophet. Uh, it never really was lucrative and good, but uh, it's no longer... Um, uh, well, there's just very few of them. Oh, hold on, Nate. I, I just want to get through this, and then I'll, I'll come back to you. Um, yeah, so the, during the monarchy, they served as emissaries that kept the leaders in check. During the exile, the prophets served to point God's people to two main things. The reason why they're in exile and a future hope of restoration. That's what the that's what the exilic prophets are doing. Uh, where God's people struggle to see how God's promises had, God's promises had not failed, but that God's people had failed. Um, and they needed to understand and be encouraged in the middle of that. Uh, and then we get the, the last part is the post-exilic prophet. What, what are these? What's this time period? Yeah, yeah, when they, when they return to Jerusalem. Yeah, and so there, some of these prophets like Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra, uh, these are the ones that are, the people of God have returned. The, um, the edict of Cyrus had brought the people of God back and they started rebuilding Jerusalem. And the, there were prophets then and they were doing something, well, they were pointing to the eternal promises of God's covenant They were reiterating the reasons for the exile in the first place, which is Israel's sin. And a return from exile does not mean that judgment 
won't also fall upon them again. So they're just reminding the people that the covenant is still in place and there is a future hope uh, and people needed to remain faithful. And so this last little quote I just wrote here on the handout, over these four periods, four main periods of the Old Testament, the role of the prophet changed and morphed depending upon the historical situation of God's people. The two main constants throughout this whole history are one, that each prophet built upon the foundations of the previous prophets along with each other, and two, the divine covenants between Yahweh and Israel were still in effect. So I just wanted to give you a, a very brief, quick survey of like the four main historical periods and where the prophets fit into that. Questions, Nate? Right, so you mentioned that in the monarchical period, there's like an institution of prophets. Yeah. What does that look like? Is that like a school or? Yeah, so you, uh, thank you, yeah, so. Yes, as you know, there are, I mean, if you read it, there are some schools. There are schools of prophets. Uh, How do you have a school of Well, just the same way that you would have schools of teachers. Uh, that's the main role of prophets, right? Like, uh, the, this is the best way that I'd describe it. Like, the role of a priest is to take the people. Let's say people are down here and God is up here. A priest communicates from people to God. That's what a priest does. A priest takes the sacrifices and communicates from the people to God. I'm, I'm getting to your question. A prophet does the exact opposite. A prophet communicates from God to the people. And so, just like there's schools today, back during the monarchical period, there were schools. Uh, Paul is under... He's a Pharisee studying under the stool of Gamil. Um, um, there were, uh, it's going to take me too long to find in my notes. Next, We're going to still talk about prophets when we get back in January 9th. So I will uh, find the reference to this. But there are schools of prophets um, that were learning and how to communicate from God to his people. Avery? I guess Mm -hmm. It seems God's like, you, go speak. And they're right. like, it's not my words. So right. how do you like, train for that? And the, yeah, yeah, Amos wouldn't. Like, Amos... Amos did not go to school for this. Uh, correct. Okay. Yeah, like, he is like this southern man who's just out there in a farm, and all of a sudden God said, go to the north and start yeah. uh, prophesying to them. Yeah. Uh, but Jonah, for example, uh, was a prophet of God. It was declared that he was a prophet of God. He just didn't want to be. Uh, he just didn't like his job, and he, uh, he just was like, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. And so uh, when I say institution, I don't want you to think that there were, like, the NYU schools that people just applied to and, like, got in, and they got scholarships, and they did all that. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is that there were a lot of prophets, and there were, I mean, probably thousands of prophets, people who were studying the covenants brought, given to the people of God through Moses, studying and communicating what the word of God has to say to the people. Uh, God would use some of them specially and specifically. Elijah and Elisha are two that were called very clearly, very, you know, 
uh, divinely to communicate. But that doesn't mean that the un, all those unnamed prophets weren't also doing the same. That's what I'm trying to say. It's just by the time we get to the exile, there weren't all those prophets anymore. All right. I'm going to... Yes, Patrick? Yes, yes. Patrick, you are leading us into our next section, which is how do we understand prophecy to begin with? Because what Patrick just said is um, we understand prophecy mostly as thus saith the Lord. This is what, uh, you know, all of a sudden, ah, I just got this great vision that you need to go buy me McDonald's lunch. You know, this is like the great vision. Um, no, uh, you know, and, and how, did the, how does the Old Testament, how does scripture understand prophecy? And so I would say, um, you know, do we view it as a fortune cookie magic eight ball? Uh, if you do, you are reading scripture, you're reading prophecy different than you read almost anything else. When you, got, when you read almost any other section of scripture, when you read Galatians, you study Galatians in your small group, you're studying Galatians in your small group, sometimes, and I would say a good Bible study says, okay, this is what Paul says right here. Here's the historical context of what Paul was dealing with. Here are the people that he's talking about. Here are the people in Galatia. Here's what the, the, the controversy is going on in the region of Galatia. Uh, this is what, where Paul was at the time. You understand the historical context to understand Galatians. We almost do the exact opposite when we come to the prophets oftentimes because it is admittedly confusing. Uh, a lot of the minor prophets, a lot of the major prophets are confusing to read. We read them almost like this is a fortune cookie. Like I'm just going to read these two verses and figure out what is the word speaking to me. Uh, It is much better to just read it in its historical context. Uh, And so we need to understand two big things, I think, which is um, I'm going to use two big theological words, is transcendence and imminence. Did I spell those right? I hope so. Imminence. Yeah, I think imminence is right. And transcendence. No, that's E. Yeah. Yes, I think that's right. If it's not right, I I don't care. Um, (laughs) Look it up. Spell check it. Uh, The... Transcendence and imminence are two important function or uh, characteristics of God. God is both transcendent and imminent. Uh, the transcendence in relation to the prophets is God is above all and over all. God has known from the very beginning everything that will come to pass. Okay, he has established the future. There are plenty of theologians that believe that God, 
does not know the future. Uh, that is not the way the Bible refers to God. Uh, I would say to those theologians, you're just not reading the Bible right. Because Scripture refers to God knowing everything. He knows it all. Uh, he knows the future. Um, and he knows whether you will repent or whether you won't repent. Okay? God, God is transcendent over all of creation. Uh, if one is to understand anything from the prophets, or anything in the Bible for that matter, one must grasp this all-encompassing fact. There is divine transcendence. God has aseity, meaning God is self-contained. He has eternality. E eternality. I'm going to pronounce all these wrong. God is over all time. He's of his immensity. He's over all space. He's immutable. God never changes. God never changes. That is super important, especially when we're dealing with prophets. Because what do prophets do? They come in and say, repent often. They're saying change. They're saying you should change, right? And so we deal, dealing with change is important. Whatever God says, it will happen. Whatever God says, it will happen. Okay, that sounds great. So far, so good. We're all on the same page. That is emphasizing the tra great transcendence of God, the uh, immutability of God, all that stuff. The problem is it appears in Scripture that sometimes God seems to change his mind. Doesn't it look like that? Sometimes there are situations where God seems to change his mind. I, I, uh, I didn't bring out the reference, um, or I didn't prepare to talk about this section, but uh, what's that uh, famous passage in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Abraham comes and uh, pleads his case before uh, God and says, please don't destroy uh, the city. And God says, well... I'm going to destroy the city, but, uh, you know, uh, if I'm going to mess it up. If there's a hundred uh, that still call, cry out to my name, or uh, Abraham is saying, what if there's a hundred people that still cry at your name? And God says, I know, I'm still going to destroy it. No, what if there's, uh, what if there's 50? I'm still going to destroy it. What if there's 10? Okay, if there's 10, then I'm still going to destroy it, but you need to go to get those people out. Do you remember this story? I'm totally butchering that passage. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. God is uh, that Abraham is bringing down the lower number, and and it it appears in this passage that God didn't know what Abraham was going to say, and there's like this bartering going on, right? So it seems I'm not saying it's true, but it seems from uh, at a, a a cursory glance of that passage that God uh, changed his mind, or at least just changed his plan, and that's when we get to the eminence the uh, divine eminence that, um, I'm messing up. Uh, let's look at Jeremiah 18. If you have your Bible, open to Jeremiah 18. In order to understand all of the prophets, I think this is the best passage to understand uh, the role of prophecy. This is the famous passage of the potter and the clay. Jeremiah, um, uh, I'm just going to read it. 
Jeremiah 18, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will let you hear my words. So I, Jeremiah, went down to the potter's house and there he, there he was working at his wheel and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. There's a lot in there just in that one little passage. You know, he's, the potter, God, is dealing with this clay, the people of God, and it's spoiled. It's ruined because of our sin. It's spoiled and ruined. So what does God do? Does he throw it away? No. He just takes it and he reworks it into another vessel, right? Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, cannot not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. Uh, what did you hear in that passage? What is God saying to the people? What did you hear? God intends... And he declares his intent, intends to destroy. And then what happens? Yeah. If repents, then no destroy. If no repents, then destroy. Someone has done some theorems. Yes. Uh, yeah. If the people repent, does God destroy? No destroy. <laughs> no destruction. But if they don't repent, there is destruction. And I'm butchering all those philosophy theorems. But uh, it appears as if God changes his mind. I'm spending a long time on this because I want you to understand that God is transcendent, has a plan, and yet the, the imminence, the, the, how it bears in our lives, the God's connection to the people of God, his... Uh, his uh, Imminent being his tabernacling with us, his Jesusing with us, his declaring and revealing himself to all of us. This is the way God, his imminence in, interacts with the world. God imminently says, I intend to destroy. And if we repent, it appears as if he changes his mind. Has God changed his mind? Not if he knows the future, yeah. Numbers 23 makes it very clear God never changes his mind. He knows the future. He doesn't change his mind. He knows what's going to happen. And yet, from our perspective, we have a decision. And so all of this, this is the way I, you know, this is just the way Reformed people view it. The big word in all of this is covenant. We've talked about this before, and we'll talk about it again. Uh, God has declared a covenant. 
where God says, I promise certain things, you promise certain things, and the, you know, there's promises on both part, both parties, promises on both parties. God is always faithful and we are mostly faithless. And yet, uh, mostly faithless. And yet, even in the middle of all of our faithlessness, God continues to bring us back. He continues to restore us. This is the gracious covenant of God, that there's promises on both parts. He is always faithful. We are mostly faithless, and he keeps bringing us, restoring us. So with prophets, he says, he's relating to this covenant. He's saying, hey, I'm going to intend to destroy you. You repented? Great. I'm going to restore you back. God didn't change his mind. He's always faithful, and yet we just continue to, uh, you know, reject that. Um, all right, so Nate and then Patrick. What about the passage in Genesis where in for the whole story, God says he regretted making man? Yeah. Right. I think there's a difference in understanding what regretting is. I think he is, oh, well, even if it's before any declared covenant, it doesn't mean that God doesn't already have his inclination towards his people in that way. That's my, that would be my quick answer to that. Patrick? I think a lot of people struggle with the idea that God knows the future and they interpret that as, well, if he knows the future, then he's going to make it happen now according to how it's going to be in the future. Sure. And uh, to me, I think that's a struggle because it seems like they're allowing the future to limit what God does now. Um, whereas I always think of him as being outside of past, present, and future. Right. You know, and those are constructs for us that are helpful in terms of living our lives. But uh, we can't say, well, if he already knows it's going to happen, because this is, this is one of the big things about you know, reform people go through all the time. But if he already knows it's going to happen, then why doesn't he just do it? Right. You know, and I, I, so I think that in this whole imminence thing, it's really, really important because um, we need to like kind of let go of the, our constructs of time and purpose of aligned with time. Right. The understanding, I, I'm hearing what you're saying. Yeah, the understanding of how God works and how we understand his works is confusing at best. Uh, yes. And I think it's not just Reformed people. I think it's the Apostle Paul that deals with this issue as well, uh, that we sin all the time. Uh, that's because Reformed theology is biblical theology. Uh, that we sin all the time, and so Paul is saying, well, does that mean that I should just, if God forgives me, does that mean I should just keep sinning forever and ever? No, not at all. Certainly not, is what our English Bible says. Uh, we should repent and come back to the faithful God, and that's what all these prophets are talking about, but acknowledge that we are mostly, mostly faithless. Um, Yeah, no, that's great. Because uh, we have to rely on faith. Because we don't understand all of God's ways. Yeah. We will see it face to face. But right now, we don't understand it all. Yeah. We have to yeah. accept it. Yeah. 
I, thank you for saying that. A lot of this is God is transcendent, and we don't really understand that. We see through the veil. We see through the mirror darkly, as Paul says. Uh, and, and we understand that. We, we agree to that. Um, and yet we also know that he's imminently here with us. He is, uh, intimately knows my desires, my hopes, my dreams, my sin, and still forgives me. This, um, the way we understand the work of God is incomplete, as Patrick was saying, it's incomplete, uh, and yet it's still true, right? It still doesn't make it less true just because it's incomplete. Uh, God is faithful and we are mostly faithless. So let, maybe a best way to continue understanding this is just to look at these specific books. Um, and so let's, let's dive into some of these books. The first book that we're going to look at is the prophet of Jonah. Uh, I put in here the outlines from a couple of guys that I've like, or maybe three guys that I like, and uh, they're different commentaries, because you'll understand that there are certain, um, uh, well, there's just different ways of reading these books. They're prophets. They're, it's hard to understand. When I first was preparing for this this week, the first book that we were going to, the first prophet that we were going to look at was uh, the prophet of Obadiah, because when I originally planned Remember, I did this chronologically. We're going to look at them chronologically. When I originally planned, I was like, oh, Obadiah, the way I've always understood it is that he's during the time of Solomon. And so he's one of these, um, he's the earliest one. Well, the more I studied it this week, I was like, oh, no, actually, I'm more and more convinced that he's a post-exilic guy. So this is the problem with to try to do these these books in chronological order, we don't really know. I mean, we understand some of them, you know, some of them have, like Isaiah has very clear, explicit historical connections, uh, but most of them are a little ahistorical. Um, there's very little reference to historical events. And so uh, I've reclassified in my own mind when Obadiah uh, exists. I thought it was 586, but it's probably... Uh, in uh, the mid-9th century. Or, no, I originally had the mid-9th century, and then I, I think it's more in the uh, late 6th century. So anyway, uh, we're going to talk about Obadiah next time. So we get to Jonah. Uh, Jonah, we all know the story of Jonah. Uh, this is one of the weird prophets that it's almost all prose. It's almost all narrative. Um, as we get into some of the other prophets, we'll see they are not. Uh, this is almost all prose. The only part that's not prose, that, that's not narrative, is his psalm that he screams from the belly of the fish uh, in Psalm 2. Uh, Jonah is the only named character, uh, which means that it's trying to be a little ahistorical. He's not, like, he, he didn't name um, uh, the, who the king of Nineveh is. Like, he doesn't name that. Uh, because it's, that's not the point, right? Uh, it is shocking, mostly, probably the best thing to remember about Jonah. That was, that's a bad sentence. Probably one of the most interesting things about Jonah is that it is shockingly different than almost any other prophet in the way it 
deals with people outside of the covenant community. I mean, if you read almost all the other prophets, right, they talk about uh, the sin of people outside the covenant and the sin of the people inside of the covenant. Well, Jonah is really, Jonah is a terrible guy, and the pagans on the boat are really spiritually sensitive. Uh, They're uh, sensitive to what's going on, and uh, the people in Nineveh repent I mean, this is just shocking and uh, crazy. Probably the best one of referencing to this Jeremiah 18 situation of God says, I'm, intent- I'm going to destroy it. And yet they repent uh, and he doesn't destroy. And so that's it for Jonah. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to move on. It's, it's a great little book. Next one is Amos. Uh, Amos ministered uh, in northern Israel. He's a southern kingdom guy. Uh, and he, he travels up to the northern kingdom and prophesies to Israel. He has conflict with the priests in Bethel, uh, he, uh, which uh, down in the south, and he goes up to the north. He addresses Samaria and Bethel frequently. Um, um, what, was, what else was I going to say about this? Uh, there is, no, I wasn't going to say that, but what I am going to say is, you know, probably, uh, oh yeah, a great little, uh, passage about Amos that helps us understand the, I was going to do this and I think I will, um, understands normal prophecy. So like Jonah's different because it's prose. Almost all the other prophets Uh, have prophecy. Uh, They do this thing where they have an introduction to their prophecy. There's an accusation in their prophecy. There's like a development of the reason of reason for the accusation. Um, There's a messenger formula, um, which I'll explain. If you want to go ahead and turn to Amos 4, 1 and 2, uh, there's, it's, it's in there. There's the intervention of God. And lastly, there's the results of the intervention. And you see this over and over again. Intervention. Um, you see this over and over again in a lot of the prophets. So Amos 4... If you don't know where the book is, go to your table of contents. That was actually kind of, not even a joke, that's usually a joke, but um, I mean, guys, I study this a lot and sometimes I'm like, wait, which one, where is that? Which one is that in? Where's that connected to? Um, Don't be embarrassed if you don't know where the minor prophets are. Uh, Go to your table of contents and look it up. So Amos 4, 1 and 2, introduction. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are in the mountains of Samaria. The accusation, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. A development of the reason, who say to their husbands, bring that we may bring that we may drink. And there's a messenger formula. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. Thus says the Lord. 
the intervention of God, that behold, the days are coming upon you and result of the intervention when you shall take you, when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And so what you see is there's this curse that's happened and there's a reason and there is the announcement, the reason for the, the, the curse, if you will, and then the announcement. Uh, and you see this over and over again. We'll, we'll look at like another passage to explain that. And so Amos um, is, uh, you know, one of those guys. Um, uh, it happened during one, his book, his prophecy happened two years before the earthquake, uh, which means that it happened really just during this one year. Uh, there's great prosperity in the northern kingdom. I mean, things are going really well for the northern kingdom at this point in their history. And Amos comes along from the south and says, you have gone away from God. There is destruction coming. And what do you think they would have heard? What do you think they would have thought about that? Get out of here. Why would you say destruction is coming? Look, like economy is booming. Everything is great. Like, why would you even say that? The, the nations around us don't care about us. There's peace here. Get out of here, Amos. All right, so let's move on, uh, and you'll see what happens. So, um, yeah, there's more I was going to say, but I got to move on. So we get to Hosea. Hosea, uh, look, if you have your Bible, look at Hosea 2, 5, and 7. And I'm only doing this one more time just so you can see what I just did actually uh, um, makes sense. <laughs> uh, Hosea, I'm finding it. Oh my God, my goodness. Where's Hosea, guys? There it is. Okay, thank you. Hosea, what did I say? Hosea 2, 5 through 7. Oh, I have it written on my, I didn't have to find it in my book. Uh, Hosea 2, 5 through 7. There is no introduction in this one, but uh, verse 5, for their mother has played, this is the accusation, their mother has played the harlot. She that conceived them has acted shamefully. The development of the reason. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Um, so, I'm jumping ahead in what I was going to talk about, but uh, if you remember Hosea, the first three chapters, the first three chapters are the story of Hosea and Gomer, um, the marriage of Hosea and Gomer. Uh, Hosea 1, and two, 1 verse 2 through 3 verse 5 is well-known passage. I'm going to come back to this because uh, I, I want to understand it. Uh, this is describing that situation, if you remember this, where Hosea is told by God to go out and marry a prostitute. Does that offend you? It should. Uh, and the ensuing disaster and recovery fro flows from this initial command by God. Um, there's debate as to whether this is an actual historical event. Is this an, uh, a made-up allegory? Is this uh, 
I don't know, just something that happened uh, or, or didn't happen. We don't, uh, I think it is an actual historical event. I do think that God told Hosea, go do this, and he did. So uh, in, uh, from Hosea 1 through early chapter 3, Hosea marries a prostitute. Gomer is her name. They have a son named Jezreel, uh, which is pointing Israel to her evil massacre at Jezreel uh, and the eventual end of the kingdom of Israel. They have, another, they have a daughter named Lo-Ruhamah, meaning not loved. Talk about a terrible name. Please don't call your kids Lo-Ruhamah. Uh, Yahweh is declaring his intention to remove his love from Israel, his love over Israel. They had another son named Lo-Ami, which means not my people. In this, it's clear that Yahweh has declared his intention to remove his seal of ownership from Israel. And so uh, Hosea describes this marriage. They have these kids and she, Gomer, goes away and prostitutes herself. Hosea restores her, goes, goes out and finds her, brings her back. They continue to be married. The names of the children are reversed. Israel is once again to be loved, once again to be his people. The day of Jezreel will be actually a great day. Uh, Hosea's marriage to Gomer and their subsequent children all symbolize Yahweh's covenant marriage to Israel his, uh, and specifically his intended judgment upon his faithless wife. And so all that passage, there's more to talk about, but Hosea and Gomer, uh, their marriage is an allegory to our uh, relationship with God. And so in the middle of that, uh, during the middle of their divorce, because Gomer has gone away and just been faithless, there's this accusation. Uh, their mother has played the harlot. She, yeah, she that conceived them has acted shamefully, the development of that accusation. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, that's really all that that messenger formula is. Therefore, the intervention of God, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her. Results of this intervention so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Uh, so it, 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 it's, it seems laborious of what we're doing, but I want you to see there's a normal formula for all these prophecies. And when you start reading the prophets this way, you start seeing, oh, this is a normal pattern. Like this is the way God, uh, the, the prophets interact and how they speak to people. You see this over and over again. The rest of Hosea is really hard to understand because it's a mixture of these uh, accusations uh, and, you know, uh, dec declarations of God, of people needing to repent. Um, and so that's all I'm going to say about that. The re readers of Hosea were not Israelites from the northern kingdom, but Judahites in the south. So that's who Hosea is referencing. So then I'm just jumping ahead because I only have five minutes. We get to Isaiah. Have you ever heard of Isaiah? Yes. Uh, Isaiah, um, for sheer... Forget who wrote this, but this is not, these are not my words. Uh, for sheer grandeur, majesty, probably no book in the Hebrew Bible 
can be compared with Isaiah. I mean, it is just beautiful and filled, and it is a um, major prophet. Why? Because it's long. Because it's long. It's super long. Yes, 66 chapters. Uh, Isaiah is super long. Um, I don't have time to get into all the things that go on in Isaiah, but I will say probably the best way to understand Isaiah's message is to read Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, through chapter 6, verse 13. And there, it's written in that Richard Pratt outline you'll see on page 10, uh, page, page whatever, page 10 of my notes, but um, is there are these three cycles, and it's three cycles of his prophecy. And these cycles uh, go from, these cycles move from disaster to hope. Isaiah is a book that goes from disaster to hope. It goes from bad to good, and then back again for the next cycle, bad to good, and then back again, bad to good. And in fact, the disasters in each cycle is about the Assyrian and the Babylonian destructions. There's a lot of history in Isaiah. It tells you about Sennacherib's invasion, the Syro-Ephraimite war, and uh, their coalition, and all those other things that go on. I'm not going to talk about that. If you want to read about it or talk about it later, we can. Uh, but you move from bad to good. And by the end of the whole book of Isaiah, we actually have a hopeful book. Uh, that's the reason why Christians like Isaiah. We like Isaiah because it actually has a lot of hope in it as opposed to something like Amos where it just feels like it's just, yeah, hammering you over your head with you're a sinner and repent. Um, so that's all I'm going to say about Isaiah. Uh, we can say so much more, but that's all I got. Uh, and then we get to Micah. Um, Micah is a book that... Is Micah was a contemporary with Isaiah, so Micah and Isaiah probably knew each other. Um, I'm sure Micah is up in heaven right now saying, like, Isaiah, what? Everyone talks about you, but they don't talk about me. I'm just kidding. Micah doesn't do that. There's no sin and all that stuff in heaven. I, I'm, I'm just kidding about that. Um, but the one thing, I, or not one, yes, in the, in the interest of time, there's a lot to say about Micah, but the interest of time, the one thing I really want to say about Micah is Micah chapter 4, verse 1 through 5. Where's Micah? It's after Jonah. Um, and Micah chapter 4, 1 through 5 says this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Uh, it, it goes on. I'm, I'm not going to read the rest of it, but you should read the rest of it. It is a, a beautiful image of the mountain of God. And the reason why I say that, I, the reason why I want us to look at it is, uh, I think this is a beautiful image of the final uh, temple of God that we see in Revelation 21. Uh, Michael presents the final vision of Mount Zion established forever as the moral center of the new heavens and the new earth. 
in all of the rest of his succeeding oracles, his prophecies, he presents the steps by which that will be fulfilled. Um, the first stage in the fulfillment of this prophecy occurred with the return from Babylon, the rebuilding of the second temple. But its next and much greater stage was realized when Christ ascended into the heavenly sanctuary. And the third and final stage, which has yet to happen, will be consummated in the new heavens and the new earth. Kings of the earth shall bring their splendor into the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. Uh, the mountain of the Lord is uh, just a beautiful image uh, that Micah has. Uh, in the interest of time, that's all I'm going to say about that. The very next prophet that is in the Old Testament uh, right after that is Nahum. Uh, Nahum uh, ministered in Judah in the southern kingdom uh, sometime between you know, those years, 650 to 628. A, the northern kingdom... Um, you know, the, the book speaks about certain events being in the past and certain things that have not yet happened. So the fall of Nineveh is still in the future. Uh, Assyria, uh, Nineveh, Assyria. Assyria is strong. Reforms are taking place in the life of the southern kingdom. And Nahum is in the southern kingdom. He's announcing that Assyria in Nineveh will be destroyed and that Judah will be restored to her full glory and splendor. Uh, the people of God didn't really want to believe that, or they didn't believe that because Nineveh's not going to be destroyed. That's like saying, I don't know, it's like saying New York would be destroyed or, or you know, something just completely crazy. Um, but Nahum, his message was pretty much predominantly positive. The main purpose of Nahum is Judah should acknowledge that God is going to destroy Nineveh and bless Judah. So um, I could say so much more, but so that we don't fly through this, I'm just going to stop there. I still want to say some more stuff about Zephaniah and Jeremiah, uh, but because I'm past time, I'm going to stop there. Um, when we get back in two weeks, three weeks, we're taking two weeks off. In three weeks, we're going to continue looking at the Old Testament books um, and make sure you look at the homework of what you should be doing over these Merry Christmas weeks. Uh, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our great prophet, that you reveal to us that you are beautiful and perfect and wonderful Help us and give us that great gift of repentance. Help us to repent back to you. Let us hear the words of the prophets that you will restore us despite our faithlessness. You are a faithful God. Help us to believe that. And especially over this Christmas time, uh, help us to remember and wait for the great consummation of the kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See you in two weeks, three weeks. Is it see you in three weeks? Three weeks.